Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Afternoon. Hello, um, my name is Matthew Sweet and it's my very great pleasure to be chairing um, this session with Clio Barnard. Clio is one of our most poetic and one of our most unflinching filmmakers. Her three feature films have found beauty and terror in the rural and urban landscapes of Yorkshire. Her experimental documentary, The Arbour, settled its camera on the council estate that was home to the playwright Andrea Dunbar. The selfish giant turned a scrapyard in Bradford into a place as mysterious and alarming as Vulcan's stithy. Dark River was set on a tenant farm in North Yorkshire, which the Water Board wants to acquire for redevelopment. We're going to explore all of this work, and rather excitingly, we're also going to hear about what Clio is working on right now, the work that she is preparing for us to see um, in the near future. So would you please welcome Clio Barnard. Clive, you've been stuck in your shed for the last uh, few months, haven't you, toiling <laughs> yes. over a script? Yeah. So I know that, you know, you, it's coming out in public is something that you've, you've, not, you've not done for a little while, no, is it? No, not for a little while. Yeah, I've been doing some workshops as well with a couple of actors who are here, actually. Um, yeah, so not completely on my own. Let's allow you to decompress uh, okay. by watching the, the trailer from your most recent picture, um, Dark River, which we can see. Um, it's sort of like being at home, this, isn't it? <laughs> Here we go. seen you for 15 years. I'm here now. Mm, what good is that? Alice. The line's in poor condition. My dad and my brother have done their best, but they've let it go. You're Joe still hanging on, is it? It hurt him, you know, when you didn't come back. I just couldn't face him. Alice! Alice! We should cut that field. Let me show you something. In one acre of hay meadow, got 400 million insects. Do you wish I'd come? Joe. No. Joe, I've tried. I've tried so hard. Just stop! Yeah. 
wonderful, very powerful film. And also one which, and I think this is, this is probably going to be a theme of this conversation, but the, the transformation of source material, I think, is very important in your work. And this seems the most extraordinary transformation of all, because the source of this is something very unlike the finished product. Yeah, the, but the source is a, a novel called Trespass by Rose Tremaine, uh, which is set in France and yeah, has a whole lot of other characters in it. So yes, this is, this is really different. And uh, in some ways, it sort of uh, found its feet for me when, once I found the farm and, and met farmers. And uh, one of the really important things for me was that they, they were tenant farmers and not owner-occupiers because um, I wanted to say something about the ownership of the land and the reason why the, the landowner was the water company was because of the privatisation of the water companies and, in a way, about land being used for profit. Um, so it's partly about our relationship with nature and, and our relationship with, with turning nature into a, a commodity or a resource. And did you ever consider following, the, following Rose Tremaine's source more, um, more, more, more faithfully and having it set in France? Because obviously the relationship between society and the land is, is very different in those two cultures. Uh, I did, and uh, the first few drafts of the script were set in France, but I think part of what I realised through that process was that it's really important for me to be able to... Uh, interview people and talk to people and be with people in a very specific place in order to... That's an important part of my process. So... Um, so you were out in the Yorkshire countryside, were you? Yeah. Chatting up farmers and interviewing them. Yes. What did you learn? Um, that their lives are really hard. <laughs> that you can't really make any money out of farming, especially sheep farming. You know, if you're doing sort of uh, agricultural... If you're a massive landowner and you're, and uh, but but sheep farming is really difficult. Most of them drove lorries, as well, because you, you can't make a living from it. So um, I think we have, sort of have a fantasy about the countryside, that um, that it doesn't that it doesn't have anything to do with politics. It doesn't have anything to do with industry. But of course it does. You know. So yeah. I think in all of your films, there's always there's always the sense of, the sense of the economy somewhere. Yeah. There is a kind of economic backbone to, to, to all three of these, uh, these features yeah. in a way. We know about people's economic circumstances. We know, uh, you know something about the bills they get or the bills they, can't, uh, the bills they can't pay. But also there's that sense of, of beauty um, and, of, and of, of spectacle too in the landscape and in the light. I mean, why is that important to you? Because some, some people who work in, in a more, in a colder kind of realist school mm. would reject that kind of imagery. Um, I think in The Selfish Giant, the, the, um, the cooling towers, they were, and actually I'm just aware because I think Tim Barker, who's uh, the sound designer on all my films, is here too. But uh, So it's making me sort of think about that a bit. But we, the, the pylons and the cooling towers, it seems to me that when we're gone, <laughs> they may well still be here, just as the waterfall in, in Dark River. When we're gone, it's still going to be here. So I think they're sort of um, they're monuments or something to... to uh, um, I'm sort of getting slightly tangled there, but they're, 
there are things that are uh, going to outlive us or be more mm. more significant than us mm. or more important than us. There is yeah. also, I think, a kind of timelessness about about the images that you, you forage mm -hmm. for these pictures. I mean, there is an incredibly beautiful scene in, in Dark River before Ruth Wilson has returned to the farm where we see her um, having, a, having dinner after a bit of sheep shearing and the trestle tables are out in the field. And I felt like, you know, we could be looking at, like, Russia at the end of the 19th century or somewhere. This, we could be in the, you know, we could be looking at those people who we never see in Chekhov plays. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I suppose part of what was going on at that point was I'd been to um, Shetland and I'd met this guy who was telling me how he was about the same age as me, that as a kid, you know, they were basically subsistence farming out of necessity. And now you go to Shetland and there's a massive Tesco's and everybody from all over the island drives to this Tesco's. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems in a very short space of time we have a very strange relationship with the land and with food and, and with the economics of that. Your heroine, played by Ruth Wilson, though, she has a different kind of relationship and she had to learn all of those mm. shearing techniques for the, for the picture. Did you get in, involved with that? Did you want her to be properly trained in Definitely wanted the art her to be of shearing? Properly, properly trained, yeah, yeah. We did a sort of boot camp for the actors where they spent a lot of time with the farmers that I'd done my research with, actually. Uh, yeah, learning to... I think she was, you know taking off lamb's balls. She was, you know, she was doing all kinds of stuff, all kinds of gross, uh, weird things that farmers do to sheep in order to farm them. Yeah, so she, yeah, she, she learned her stuff. It was, very, it was tough for her, very, for both of them, for her and Mark. Did you try your hand at it? No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd like to pretend I did, but yes, I did, yes. <laughs> the countryside is, I mean, this dark river... This is where we, we spend most of our time in, in rural environments. But also in the Arbor and the Selfish Giant, that, that you know, the rural is, is sort of just over the, over the Pebble Dash wall somehow. It's yeah. there on mm. the edge. Is that idea important to you of that, of the border between those two places? I think it's probably less apparent in the Arbor, but in the Selfish Giant, the two boys that that's based, loosely based on, who are called Matty and Michael, they were, it, that was very much a part of their world. And in some ways, where Buttershaw is, which That's is the where they're from, mm. the estate where they're from, it's right on the edge of Bradford, because Bradford's like a bowl, and all of those uh, council estates are right at the edge, so they're actually quite close to that. And, you know, for a lot of people, I suppose that that's not part of their lives, but for these two boys, it definitely was. Yeah. And what were you, are you sensitive to walking around in that? Landscape. You know, what do you, what do you feel when you're standing on the edge of, Bra of, of Bradford? I mean, well, <laughs> I don't know. That's quite a, um, lots of things. <laughs> but, but I suppose in, in Dark River, part of what I wanted to do was to show that the sort of, I don't know, the visceral reality of the, of the land and, the, and what it is to farm it, that it's not this... Uh, it can be beautiful, but it's not this sort of picturesque painting of a landscape that you put on the wall and that you admire. You know, it's something that's, that lives and breathes and we live and, and breathe in and that, you know, death and life and birth and sex happen in this 
place. <laughs> How hard is it to find those images, to know that you're, uh, that you're you know, conveying something about the beauty of this environment without sentimentalising it? Because you absolutely don't mm. do that. But, it, but, but I could imagine that like, um, you know, trying, to, trying to make sure that you don't is a, pretty, is yeah. a struggle. Yeah, it is a struggle, yeah. So there's a, there's a sort of... It's, it's hard to find that balance of, um, yeah, not sentimentalising, but appreciating the beauty of, of whether it's landscape or people or, you know, whatever it may be, yeah. Let's talk about The Arbour, your, your first feature. Mm -hmm. Very unusual documentary um, uh, telling the story of, the, of the, the life and the work of the playwright Andrea Dunbar, who, who grew up, uh, as you mentioned, on the Buttershaw estate in Bradford. Let's see a clip, and, and, mm -hmm. and so for, I'm sure everybody in this room has seen it, but, but just let's remind ourselves of how unusual an undertaking this is. I can remember Lorraine setting the bedroom on fire. Uh, and I were only young then, I was probably only about five. But to, still to this day, if you talk about it to me, aunties and stuff, and this is all say, we don't know which one of you it was. And I'm like, it won't be because I can actually remember it to this day. She was messing with mat uh, matches and the mattress caught fire. You know, back then you didn't have the double glazing and stuff that you get now. Um, you know, the house was horrible, no carpets. No central eating, locked in a room with no door handle. And um, standing at the window shouting for help because you know, the fire had got out of control. But I think, I think, I don't know if, I think it were actually me, but when we shut the bedroom door, the handle fell off the door on the inside so we couldn't get back out. So, they were only handle on outside. But I, I think it was me that actually brought that, because I think I, I started unscrewing it with a knife or something. <laughs> Just being mad kids. My mum used to take the door handles off and she used to come in the bedroom and check there was no knife or forks, because if you got a knife or fork, you could put the handle in to get out of the door. And, um Whenever you used to get out of the room until mum was up and she was ready to sort of release us from a prison, if you like. I can actually remember my mum when we lived at Edgen Gardens. I can always remember her staying up late writing. Well, now I know what it was, do you know what I mean? But when we were kids, we, didn't, we never knew what she was doing. But she used to stay up late and just write and write and write and write. She'd have, like, A4 sheets of paper, just loads of them on bed, and then... Because I can remember Andrew once pulled them off at bed and she had to re-sort them out and put them back in order. And there were a woman that lived about two doors down and she was a bus driver. Well, it was her husband who got a ladder up to the back window and 
got us out window and I, I can remember my mum, she, oh, she, she was going stir crazy. It was, oh, it was mad. That was mad, that was. Oh, I think we need to do this, don't we? Extraordinary. <laughs> it's such a powerful film, Bio. God, it, it, it hits you in the guts. Not just because it makes you think of Dunbar and that very short career that she had and how young she was when she died, but also about the aftermath of her story too and the way that you spoke to members of her family and, and, you know, and built up what they'd said into this, into this film. Can you just sort of explain to us the different elements that were, were seen there and how you secured them? Um, so, yeah, I interviewed people, well, from Buttershaw Estate initially, but then specifically the Arbor, which was where Andrea Dunbar grew up and where a lot of her family still live. And... So, yeah, I spent about two years actually interviewing people and then um, actors lip-synced to the voices of the interviewees. Um, there was also a performance of her play, uh, The Arbor, on Rafferton Arbor, um, and there was archive. So there were sort of several different elements that were all woven together, really, to, to sort of tell Andrew's story in some ways, but but it, with the focus of it in some ways became her daughter Lorraine. Mm. So it's very much a mother-daughter story and, um, and also the story about three generations of one family and, and you know, 30 years or more of, of one very specific place. And the story, of the, as you say, the story of that community mm -hmm. too. I mean, the arbour is like, you know, it's this big verdant expanse, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's a huge green with, the, with the, uh, almost like a crescent of houses uh -huh. um, around it. Um, and, uh, but the, the idea of, of using interview material and then having actors lip sync to it, I mean, we know that from, from, from comic uh, mm -hmm. sources that we know from Creature Comforts mm -hmm. and I think that is one of the places that, that where this idea started isn't it for you? I really love uh, I saw this animation that had been made by the people who then went on to make Creature Comforts and it was a really early film that I think they'd made when they were students and they went to Arlington House in Camden that was a, a, a kind of DOS house I guess and they'd put a kind of crappy recording device in the foyer and recorded verbatim what, what happened. And then they really painstakingly animated, um, animated it with these sort of plastic figures. And I was just very, very struck by the, by the difference between the sort of veracity, I suppose, of the sound and this kind of painstaking thing of, um, of recreating it in... And, and sort of what that did and the sort of questions it raised about, about how constructed films are mm. and, and in a way how we sort of, we want, we want, as, in some ways I'm a sort of, I think I'm a social realist filmmaker who's a bit suspicious of the word authentic because there's always a gap. And in, I suppose in between what's real and what's represented. And in, in some ways with the Arbor, I wanted to point that out. So what, I didn't want to push you out so much that you didn't engage 
uh, with, with the story that you were being told, but that you were constantly aware that you were being told a story. That was really important. So that was the reason, really, for this really complicated thing of actors lip-syncing to the voices. How did the fact that your interviewees were not visible on camera change the nature of what they said to you, do you think? People behave differently if there's just a microphone in the room to compared with how they behave when there's a, there's a camera pointing at them. Yeah, I think they behave very differently. Yeah, and there was... And also, for Lorraine, she didn't want to be on camera. And for her foster parents, it, in sort of retrospectively for them, it, that, that level... I mean, it doesn't give complete an anonymity, but a level of anonymity anonymity was really good for them, useful for them too, because they, they went on to be professional foster carers and they, they didn't particularly want to be uh, um, on camera. So, um, but yes, I think people behave very differently. And I, I really love Jean Rouge's work. And he, you know, he talks about the camera being a catalyst. I don't think that... You, it just stands back and observes, it changes things. And what was the attitude of the people living on the Buttershore estate who became part of the, of the drama? Because Dunbar's relationship with them was quite ambivalent, wasn't it? She got a lot of stick off her neighbours for having had you know, the temerity to, to, to have a play on at the Royal Court and to, uh, to have had a, a rather successful uh, film made of her play, Rita, Sue and Bob too. I think they were pr phenomenally proud of her as well. You know, I think it was... But part of what I wanted the film to do was to look at how com complex that, that relationship might be. Like, if you... Especially she was making such autobiographical work um, that, that it's, not, it's not a simple thing that... You know, or the complication that comes if you... of her representing her own life, you know? That was part of what I wanted to explore. What was it in her work that you responded to personally? I really love Rita Sue and Bob 2, the film, and I, I didn't really know her work as plays. I knew, I love Alan Clark's work and I really loved that film. So, um, yeah, in a way it was, she drew me back there. And, you know, she, she's been a massive inspiration for me. I think we should watch another clip. This um, is a scene in which there's a kind of... Oh, oh. The other, sex. Penny, open it's the police. Stop the car, look it out. Don't move around it, I'm just that normal. Look it out, tell them, Bella, stop. Don't be silly. Do you want to catch it? Well, we get around this corner and you want to jump out. I'm not pregnant. No, she's not. You better not be either. Slow down a bit. I can't, they're nearly catching us. Slow down, please. I'm gonna try to pull up, get ready to jump. They pull up, and the girl is left in the car, which wasn't to a snicket. A policeman comes up to the girl. Right, come on, get out. Don't talk, bloody silly. How can I get out when the car door is jammed in the lamppost? Well, get out this side then. And hurry up, I haven't got all night. Give me a fucking chance, will you, man? Right, what's your name? Why? Because I want to know, that's why. I don't know. I mean, you're not going to tell me? Give me a minute. I've forgotten it. It'll come back to me in a minute. Are you trying to be funny, young lady? No. So what's your name? I think it's Andrea. What do you mean you think? All right, all right. It's Andrea Dunbar. Right, and where do you live? Up there. 
Up where? Up there in the harbour. Right, we'll get in that car. What for? Because I said so, that's why. Now, now that's great. I mean, not least because what, what's happening, what you're, you're, what you're restaging there on the grass. But of the people behind, I mean, was it important to you to, to have that sense of, of you and your crew almost intervening in this, this estate? Well, the, the people on the wall, actually, one of them is Matty's mother, who is the who Arva, the character in The Selfish Giant, the protagonist in The Selfish Giant, is, is based on. So, so there's... Um, she's sort of in the next film I made, if you see what I mean. So, so The Selfish Giant really grew out of the, out of the Arva. So, and there are a lot of the people that I spent time with and interviewed in the sort of two years before I actually made the film. Um, yeah. There were, you know, there, it was, there were other scenes where... Andrea Dunbar's nephew is in one of the one of the other scenes of the staging of the Arbor on the Arbor. Yeah. And what did those people think? I mean, we the, as said that that Dunbar had a kind of slightly itchy relationship with her, with her, with the people who lived around her. How has a memory of her been preserved amongst the on the estate? Well, there's a blue plaque actually on her house that we put there after the. Film had been made. I think it won some money, and part of what we did with that was was put this blue plaque on her mm. house. And um, yeah, so I mean, I think she's still very kind of much present in a way in the in not just there but in Bradford. Yeah. And what was it like screening it to to everybody who was in it? Um, we sort of, well, Tracy and I, the, Tracy, the producer and I, went to each person who'd participated and who was in the, you know, the final cut and uh, showed it to them before we locked picture. Mm. And, um, yeah, which was quite a, quite a journey, you know, because it's, it's raw, it's, it's kind of difficult stuff. And Lorraine, who... Um, is really becomes the sort of subject of the film. It was particularly difficult with her because her she had gone to jail for um, uh, manslaughter because her child had picked up her uh, methadone prescription mm. and died. So uh, yeah, that was that was particularly difficult. And Andrea's sister and Lisa, Andrea's other daughter. So yeah, it, I mean, it felt like a massive responsibility. And how did you negotiate it? I mean, what were they... Did they ask you to, to change anything? Did they... Uh, they didn't, actually. The, Lorraine said sh she felt raw, but in a good way. And actually, I saw her last weekend. I went with her to meet her children who... Uh, she had two other children who were taken away from her. Mm. Um, and she's now re reunited with them. We all had lunch last last Saturday, um, and Andrea's sister said she didn't think Andrea would have liked it, <laughs> which was honest. <laughs> and the thing that... One Did she thing tell you why? <laughs> no. Because Andrea didn't like... Uh, Andrea Nabard wasn't too keen on the film of Rita Sue and, and Bob too, was she? she? Which is a great film. She wasn't, <laughs> no. Um, 
I don't know, it's a complicated, it's a complicated story, you know, it's a difficult, I, and I tried really hard to not uh, make decisions for the audience about who was right and who was wrong, so that it's complex enough for you to, to not judge anybody, that that's, was what I wanted. So, um, but did you always know that in a way this, would have filmed, this was a film that would always have a kind of bloody edge to it, that there, was al there would always be something unresolved and there would always be, it would always be for the people involved, carry a certain amount of pain with it too, necessary yeah, pain yeah. perhaps, but pain. Yeah, and I guess, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's a kind of um, tension between the need to tell a true story and the lives that get exposed in the telling of that true story. And in, in some ways, that's also what I wanted the film to address. And that was part of the reason for doing the lip syncing, part of the reason for taking the arbor back to the arbor. Um, yeah. There was one thing, actually, that Pamela, who's Andrew's sister, said that we changed... It was quite hard to change it at that point, but it was more of a factual thing. But Lorraine had remembered her father coming to pick her up and take her away for the weekend. And she said, he did come, but he didn't take her away for the weekend. And we've got, you know, one of the sort of moments where there's a bit of what's over the, the landscape or whatever, which actually you see in Rita Sue and Bob too as well, this mm. car on the moors, is uh, the, Lorraine is a child on this standing on the car, like this kind of idea of going away for the weekend with her father. And so we slightly changed that. And when I told Lorraine, actually, Pamela says he didn't take you for the weekend, um, she couldn't believe it. She said, but I remember him brushing my hair, you know. So it's set, I suppose, partly what the film does is sets up the idea of an unreliable narrator. Because in some ways, we are all unreliable narrators because our memory plays tricks on us. We tell different stories about our lives from one minute to the next, you know. So in, that was also something that I wanted to try and address with the film, that Andrea, yes, told autobiographical stories, but in order to do that, she had to reshape reality in order to tell the story that she wanted to tell. And how did The Selfish Giant emerge from the arbor? Because as you say, there are some of its characters, or the basis for those characters, caught in the back of that frame. Yeah, because uh, there was a boy called Matty, and he, was around that set when we were shooting that on a horse a lot. <laughs> and, um, you know, it looked great in the shot. So I'd say, Matty, could you move your horse? Anyway, he was, I, I got to know him and I, I got to really love him. <laughs> and, uh, and he was, you know, had this best friend called Michael. And I was, I suppose, you know, they'd, they, he was excluded from school. He didn't really get a secondary school education. And I met a lot of boys of his age who weren't really getting a secondary school education. And it upset me and made me angry. <laughs> and so I wanted to make a film about it. And how did you them. discover what it was that they were doing? Because the, the two boys in the film, of course, make their, make their pocket money from, um, from scavenging bits of car wrecks and taking yeah. them to, be, to, the, to the furnace. Yeah. Um, well, but just because they were, they were sort of doing it all, you know, like, around us. So, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, <clears throat> I th actually, what I remember is going back up to Buttershaw with uh, Tracy, the producer, to do the thing of showing everybody the arbour. 
And I think she said to me, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, I've got this hunch about this Oscar Wilde's fairy story, mm -hmm. but setting it here now. So that was... That, and that came, I guess, from what was going on around the set while we were, while we were shooting the album on the album. Let's see. Mm. <laughs> and what we want to move this? Glass moving. Holy fuck, money, man. Right, take so much stuff off and that door. Got it out. These won't come off. What, what, that? Right, pull it. Jobs are good. See that, it'll be easy. Go and get started. Let's just keep stripping it and we'll be able to do it. You don't even know what you're doing. Of course I do. Daft cunt. Ah, be able to get our roof off and that at this rate. How are we going to put that on there? There's a way. Here's the fuck. I got wheel off. What dropped me to do shit smart is? Fucking car. Some boys will be able to lift the car and the car. I use a fiver. I'll do it. I want a tenner. All right, I like him. A tenner. Well, I'll do it for a fiver. <laughs> you can hardly stand up, mate, let alone lift the fucking car. Yeah, yeah, go on, I'll give you a lift. Go on, now get out. Cool, you smack, Kate, for a wrap of pool cue around today. Fucking twat. Well done, lads. Quick for the Ali Orson car. Follow up, burnt out car. Fuck off. Now get back out there and earn it. Robbing bastards. Brilliant. And it's very funny, and they are very funny too. I mean, mm. they seem natural comedians, uh, uh, Connor Chapman and Sean Thomas. How did you find them? Um, I worked with the same casting director that cast the Arbor, uh, Amy Hubbard, and what she was kind of going to schools and meeting lots and lots and lots of kids. And um, Connor actually is from Buttershaw, which is mm. you know where Andrea Dunbar's from, and um, she found him there and sent me the. I think I was viewing things online at that point, and um, yeah, he was just brilliant. He really stood out, and then met him and he told me he'd gone to the audition to get out of lessons and he um, told me he could ride and he couldn't. <laughs> and, um, 
And then we cast him initially actually as Swifty because he told us he could ride. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, in order to, and then we started looking on Homewood, which is another estate in Bradford where there's lots, of, there's loads and loads of horses. So in a way, Matty was a bit of an anomaly on Buttershaw because there weren't that many horses, but there were loads on Homewood. So then Amy went there to look and we looked in the school and, um, and Sean Thomas, sort of befriended Amy, really, and really helped her with the castings. And then we did a sort of chemistry test between Connor and Sean, and, and then it sort of became really clear to swap, to swap them around. Um, and Sean's actually very extrovert and loud and had us in stitches, and uh, Connor's actually really shy. So, you know, they were sort of playing against type in a way. So with Sean, he said, um, when we're doing the rehearsals, and I said, because if you help someone on a cart, you're called a dosser. So, you know, he was, he was um, Connor's dosser. He was like, I would never <laughs> take orders from a 12-year-old. And I'm a really good boxer, you know, just it wouldn't happen. So, you know, Sean, you're pretending. So, yeah, so they kind of, uh, yeah, had to kind of switch around who, who they sort of naturally were, if you see what I mean. They brought a lot of themselves to it, but were also... I read that, that Connor nearly gave up on the first day. At rehearsals, he uh, spent... A, he was there for a couple of hours, and then he was bored, and he wanted to go home. Um, and he's in every single scene of the film, so that was a big worry. How did you persuade him to stay on the picture? Well, we... <laughs> we said we were going to have to recast it, mm. which we sort of actually thought we were going to, so we got... Kids in who'd done, you know, who had done, a, had, were very experienced child actors. And, you know, Connor re. What do you call it? Anyway, he re, resubmitted? No, that's mm. the wrong word. But anyway, he. Um, but he re auditioned, that's, yeah. that's the term. And he came, he, he knocked the socks off all of them, mm. which was brilliant. So he came in with this sort of renewed energy, and yeah, he was, he was brilliant. And he did, he, he stuck it out, he did. Every he's in every single scene, and you know it was a, it was a tough shoot. It was six weeks, and he was he was brilliant. And this harness riding culture that we we see so much of in the picture, these races where mm. people you know race on these horses and carts, and they you know they shut down the motorway, don't mm. they? They they put obstructions up on the motorway so they can race at dawn mm -hmm. um, uh, in a in a space you know befitting uh, befitting them. How did you discover that? Was that something that... Because you'd, you'd looked at that before, hadn't you, in some yeah, other context? Yeah, I'd made a, a, a gallery installation about, called Road Race, about oh. road racing. And um, it was actually when I moved to Kent. There's a lot of... There's a big traveller culture in Kent. And, um, and I was curious about it and got to know a group of people who did this harness racing on the roads. So, yeah, went to a, a road race... So the best place for it is on the A1 on a Sunday morning <laughs> in the winter. There's a mm. season, and it's because there's a very straight, um, flat, one-mile bit of road between two laybys. And have you if gone? You to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have yeah, you ever put a bet on it? I didn't put bets on. No? Um, and actually, what, uh, I'm aware because Tim's here somewhere, that we, we, what the initial idea was to mic people up a bit like in the arbor, that we'd just get the sound and then we'd reconstruct the race. And we did a version of that. Mm. But actually, when we got to the race, people didn't want to wear these things because mm. they were really suspicious. 
Um, but a video camera was fine because everybody was, you know, videoing the races. This was before mobile phones. So actually what happened was I was sort of waiting to drive my car in the race, which is quite a scary thing to do because people drive like lunatics. And this guy just jumped in my car. <laughs> so I said, OK, you drive. <laughs> and I'll, I'll sit here. And, because he knew how to drive in the race, and also then I could, I could record it. So, yeah. Is it your interest in, ca in capturing something like that 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 makes you a realist too. You want to document something Maybe. that's, that's uh, there whether you're there or not. Yeah, yeah, but I, I acknowledge that me being there will change things. But yes, I like to listen and observe and I'm not that comf comfortable as you can probably tell <laughs> being the talker in the, you know, so yes, I like to observe and listen, but I'm also, yes, I'm, I'm going to repeat exactly what I just said, conscious that that changes the... I feel that you're, all, you're also kind of plugged into a, a European tradition here. That, that post-war Italian filmmaking yeah, too. That's yeah. surely on your radar, isn't it? It all is. Of that? It is. And, you know, I love... Um, you know, I love Ken Loach and I love Kez. And, um, you know, he was very influenced by the Italian neorealists. And, you know, I love the people who've been influenced by him, like Corrida and um, the Dardenne brothers. So, yes, it's, I, I love that kind of work. And, you know, I, I mentioned Jean Rouge because, in a way, he's a documentary maker, but, he, but he's also interested in the relationship between documentary and fiction. Mm. And with the... With, it's such a sort of ethical minefield making documentary. And in some ways, with fiction, it doesn't negate that, but it's... But um, I suppose what I think I'm doing in some ways are uh, sort of fictional biographies uh, or um, collaborative portraits. Because in some ways, The Selfish Giant is a, is a portrait mm. of, of two people that I got to know. And what, tell us about the sound world of these films, because there is, you know, you're not, you're not bringing in an orchestra at the last minute, are you, to, no. to, to make us do one thing or another as we sit there in the cinema. And maybe that's also something that comes from, you know, I mean, the Dardenne brothers mm. would never go anywhere near a score, mm. would they? Is that sort of austerity, if I can put it like that? Is that important mm. to you? You find it bracing? Um... There is score in the films, but it's subtle. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I guess it comes out of a principle that comes out of neorealism, you know, that, that, I, that I like. Because <laughs> you, you don't want us to feel that we're being pushed one way or another because in any I obvious want, way. I don't want... You, I mean, inevitably you are manipulating, but I don't want... I want the emotions to come out of the material. I don't want to press a button that's, you know, that has a score that says, feel upset now, mm. or, yeah. I want it to grow from the, to come out of the material. So it's been a couple of years since Dark River. Mm -hmm. What have you been doing in your shed? I've been writing a script <laughs> that has uh, singing and dancing in it, <laughs> and loads of music, which we'll never be able to clear. But it has loads of music, but it's diegetic music, so, it, so the mm. it's about the characters and their relationship with music. Um, and, yeah, I, and I hope it's going to be funny and fun. Mm. And it's a love story. So, yeah. 
And this is not an adaptation as, uh, as Dark River was. Is no. it even... Does it have a relationship with a, with a source? It's inspired by uh, a film called Fear Eats a Soul by Fassbinder that was made in the 70s in Munich. And he was inspired by a Hollywood melodrama called All That Heaven Allows by Douglas Sirk. So it's, it's taking that and setting it in Bradford. <laughs> and it's inspired by two real people, one of whom is Sean, who plays Swifty in The Selfish Giant, his mum. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. And a, she's called Rio, and she's yeah. brilliant. She's amazing. And he's... Uh, Sean may well play a version of himself. Um, yeah, so... It's very exciting that you, you, you're throwing us these crumbs. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm instinctively... I'm kind of a bit conflicted, because I want to know as much as I, I can, but I don't want to say... I don't want to, make, don't want to kind of lead you into saying anything that okay, you'll, okay. That you'll, I'm, you'll I'm spoil yourself. Myself, but why yeah. did you want to go back to Bradford? That's uh, Well... Was I it calling you? It was calling me, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think maybe a bit like the Dardens have a relationship with a town. I think maybe I have a relationship... With 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 the people in a in a very particular place, yeah, that's grown up over, you know, since over ten years. Yeah. Mm. What kind? How would you describe that relationship? Warm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, affectionate, I, um, deep. I don't mm. know. It's but it's it's uh, you know the relationships are are real and they're ongoing, and um, as well as. This week has been quite weak because as well as seeing Lorraine and her children, um, Matty, who Arbor's based on, got in touch to tell me he's had a baby and he's named him Copper, which is a oh, very wow. valuable metal. Yes, it's the one that they're all after, isn't it? Pull up the railway, railway cable for, yeah. <laughs> so is this, in a way, I almost sense that, and it's kind of there already, a body of work that's also giving us a picture of a particular part of the country mm. across a, a number of years. I th yes, yeah. And also that in that sort of microcosm of... I mean, you could probably focus on one street <laughs> and make zillions of films. You know, I think it's... I don't think it limits it. I think it means that you can kind of dig into things that are important for all of us. Sometimes when I, I look at your work, I mean, particularly, I think, with, with Dark River... I think of, of other, of authors, really, who have, who have done this, had this strong relationship with a particular locale. There are moments in, in Dark River that make me think of, of Thomas Hardy. I mean, not, mm. not least the scene where a lot of sheep go mm. astray. So is there a kind of territory? Is there, like there's Hardy's Wessex, is there Barnard's Yorkshire? Maybe. Barnard's Bradford. <laughs> Maybe I have to give it a different name from Yorkshire. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Clio Barnard. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on. <laughs>